As you reach for your Bible, if you'll stand, please, in honor of God's Word, and turn to Acts chapter 18. We'll be uh, reading the last part of Acts 18, going into Acts 19. We'll be reading Acts 18, 24 through 28, and then chapter 19, verses 1 through 7, as Pastor Chris continues this series. And if you don't have a Bible with you, you can use a pew Bible in front of you. You can find it on page 640. We'll be reading about Apollos today from Acts 18 and 19. I'll be starting at Acts 18, verse 24, and we'll read through Acts 19, verse 7. Now a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he desired to come to Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. For he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus. And finding some disciples, he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, We have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, Into what were you baptized? So they said, Into John's baptism. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, Christ, that is on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now the men were about twelve in all. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for Apollos and Paul, just the ministry throughout Acts, uh, as we're studying the, the last part of, uh, of Acts 18 and 19 this morning. We pray that we would have open hearts and minds to learn about sowing the gospel seeds in our lives and the people around us. Yes, you would be with uh, Terry and the musicians as they uh, continue our worship this morning. Be with Pastor Chris as he brings our message after. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, that was good, amen? So, holy God, a God of holy love, of holy power. Well, this is October, is it not? And you never know what kind of weather you're going to get here in Kansas City in October. In fact, I can remember... Uh, in 1997, we had this freakish ice storm right before World Outreach. Remember that? And uh, we, Gwen and I, went to KCI and picked up our national pastor, Rudy, from Columbia. And Rudy, this was in the days when you still had, like, cameras that used film. And Rudy used a whole roll of film at night, taking pictures out the window of snow that he had never seen before. And uh, I don't know how those turned out, but he was very excited about that. And then I remember in 2005, we had this power outage. We had this storm, and we had this severe power outage. And, you know, power outages are just really a, a, a real pain. I mean, for one hour, you get irritated, right? We don't have power. We can't do what we want to do. For one day, it gets even more irritating. Now, when it goes to two days, if you're like me, during the daytime, you walk around into rooms flipping on lights and going, oh, yeah, there's no power, right? And that's really irritating. And then three to five days, you're like 
freaking out. We, I cannot live without this power. Well, Bill Hoving was one of our global guests that, that year, and I remember him standing right here and using that as an example to remind us that when we don't pray for our global partners, it's like a power outage for them in sowing gospel seeds with power. And this passage this morning that Zach read for us reminds us that power is essential to sowing gospel seeds. Last week we saw in Acts 18, 24 through 28, Apollos was this gifted but powerful sower of the gospel with gospel accuracy. You can listen to that message on iTunes podcast, on our website, but I want you to look at verse 26 of, eight, of chapter 18 and notice that he spoke out boldly as he sowed the seed of the gospel. And then in verse 28, he powerfully refuted in public those who denied and rejected Jesus as the Christ. Now, where did his power come from? Well, we saw last week it came from two things. In verse 24, he was mighty in the scriptures. And in verse 25, he was fervent in the spirit. The scriptures and the spirit. Word plus spirit equals life and it equals power. And so what we see here is that sowing with gospel abandon and accuracy requires gospel growth, power. I'm sorry, requires gospel power. If we, we can seek to sow with abandon, we can seek to sow with accuracy, but without the gospel power, here's what's going to happen. Without the power of the indwelling spirit, inward fears and outward pressures will cause us to abandon sowing. Instead of sowing with abandon, we'll abandon sowing. And our gospel accuracy will harden into dead, rigid, cold orthodoxy. And that's what this strange passage this morning wants to teach us. Acts 19, 1 through 7, is going to teach us that truth. We're still in the city of Ephesus. We're still on Paul's third missionary journey, but now Paul has decided to join us in Ephesus. And so Paul has arrived on the scene. Apollos has gone to Corinth where Paul just was. They're passing. They, don't know, they, don't, they, don't, they just pass in the night. And now Paul's come from Corinth back to Ephesus. And like his gospel co-workers from last week, Aquila and Priscilla, Paul encounters some, quote, disciples who only know about the baptism of John. Now, when you first see these two passages next to each other, you might come to the conclusion that Apollos is just like these 12 disciples. And in fact, some students of this passage think that they are the same, that they, they are identical. But we're going to see this morning that there are some very important differences between Apollos and between these 12 disciples. Yes, they've been exposed to John the Baptist and his teaching. Yes, they were baptized with John's baptism, but there's a difference with them. And the Apostle sets about to publicly help these 12 disciples. There's a difference right there. Priscilla and Aquila helped Apollos in private 
Paul's going to deal with this in a very public manner. And he's going to help these 12 disciples to not only receive Jesus, but to receive the indwelling spirit. Apparently, they had not either, they had not heard about Jesus or the indwelling spirit. They didn't know about Jesus or the spirit. And here's what we're going to learn. The secret to sowing with gospel power. The secret to sowing with gospel power is this. We need to receive the Spirit to sow with gospel power. We must receive the Spirit in order to have the Spirit's power. And so let's look at why receiving is necessary for sowing. And we're going to have three reasons. And the first reason is this. We receive the Spirit to be saved. We receive the Spirit to be saved. Now look at verses 1 through 3 there in your Bibles as you follow along. Paul asked these, and I'm always using air quotes, these disciples, two diagnostic questions about their spiritual journey. In other words, he sees these guys and he wants, like we should be doing in our sowing, he wants to find out where they are in their spiritual journey. So to do that, he asked them two questions. First, did you receive the Spirit when you believed? Did you receive the Spirit when you believed? And they respond, no, we haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. We haven't even heard that the Holy Spirit is. And this seems odd because John the Baptist said, I baptize in water, but the one coming after me will baptize with the Spirit. But somehow these guys, I believe, had encountered the teaching of John, maybe indirectly, I, we don't know, but they did not know about the Holy Spirit. And so Paul follows up with this question, into what then were you baptized? And you see their answer, into John's baptism. Now here's what I want you to catch about why he's asking these questions. He saw something that was missing in the lives of these so-called disciples. There was something about their lives, there was something about the way they talked. Paul suspected that they had not received the Holy Spirit. And so you've got to understand that we don't, we don't typically think this way. When he's asking the question, have you received the Holy Spirit? He's really basically asking, have you been born again? Are you saved by the risen Lord? And why is that? Because the risen Lord is the one who gives the Holy Spirit. Therefore, at this point in the progress of God's salvation, if you believe in Jesus, you would have received the Holy Spirit. And so he asks, he sees something that is missing. Now, some would ask, aren't these 12 guys just like Apollos? I thought you said last week, Apollos was most likely saved. Aren't these guys called disciples? And doesn't Paul say they believed? And indeed, he does. But notice a couple things. First of all, they're called disciples. And yet, every time disciples is used in the book of Acts by Luke, every time it's used of true Christians, it has the definite article, the disciples, the Christian disciples, the believing disciples. Here is the only time in the whole Gospel of Luke that in the original 
Greek, as Luke wrote it, there is not a definite article. It tells us something is amiss. Also, Paul does ask them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And yet we're going to see in this passage that even though he says when you believed, he's going to start preaching the gospel to them. He's going to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and direct them to believe in Jesus. You see, Paul sees there's something missing. There's something missing in their life. There's something missing in their talk. There's something missing in their witness. And Paul asks the crucial question regarding the mark of a true believer in this age, and that is, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believe? Basically, Paul is saying, you must receive the Spirit when you believe in order to be saved. Now that Jesus has risen, do you realize this passage is not only 19 chapters after Acts 2, it's 20 years after Acts 2. The Spirit has come down. Christ has gone up. The Spirit has come down. The church has been born. And 20 years later, these guys are caught in a time warp. And so basically Paul says, look, to be saved, you must receive the Holy Spirit. Now, in your, uh, in your Bibles, or I'm sorry, in your bulletin, bulletin isn't your Bible, there is a chart of definite differences between Apollos and the 12 disciples. And working through this, I'm just giving that to you. You can look at that later. You can, just, you can see. You do your own study. You determine what you think. But I see there are definite differences in how these two, this man and this group of men are handled, how they're dealt with, how they're described. And so let me sum it up in this way. The bottom line is this. Apollos, I believe, was saved and needed further discipleship to fill the gaps in his gospel understanding of Jesus and baptism and the Spirit. But these 12 guys were not saved yet, and they didn't need discipleship, they needed evangelism. They needed to hear the gospel, believe the gospel, receive the Spirit in order to be saved. In other words, I would put forth to you this morning, these 12 disciples... These 12 men were almost Christians. They were almost Christians. And today we still have almost Christians that are close but not yet born again. Almost Christians will almost get to heaven, but almost getting to heaven isn't close enough when you're talking about your eternal destiny. What are some characteristics of almost Christians today? Because often, almost Christians can be found in churches just like ours. Often, they've made a decision in the past and have even experienced a religious ritual. Maybe they got sprinkled. Maybe they got immersed. Maybe somebody laid hands on them. They've experienced something. They might even consider themselves Christian. They might even identify as disciples, maybe even disciples of Christ. They may read their Bibles, they may attend church regularly, they may even be Baptists. Often they say they believe Jesus died on the cross for their sins, but they still think they need to work and work 
and work to be good enough to earn God's approval. I've said many times, the only thing that we bring to our salvation is our sins. And yet, almost Christians may even know the gospel with a head knowledge, but they give no evidence of a changed heart and the Spirit's presence in their life. In other words, remember our first message in this series, we talked about the soils and the parable of the sower. Now, almost Christians aren't that first soil of hard rejection. Almost Christians are like the shallow soil where they get excited about religion or get excited about Christianity, but they quickly fade away when pressure or trouble comes. They're almost Christians. They're like the, the, the crowded soil where it, the, they respond and, and, and life seems to spring up, but the cares of the world, you know, it's crazy out here. This, God's rain is always better than human rain, right, when you're trying to grow grass. So that grass out there is going crazy. But you know what else I'm watching and is going crazy? There are weeds going crazy in the middle of that baby grass. And those weeds go broader and they, they spread out further. I'm like, Bill, we got to get in there. We got to kill them weeds. And he says, Don't you dare touch them weeds. We got to let that baby grass grow. You see it, it's playing out right there. Almost Christians who allow the cares of this world to weed out their faith in Christ. Almost Christians, you see, are not like the good soil. Almost Christians haven't allowed the gospel to penetrate their heart. They haven't had their heart transformed so that they can latch on to Jesus with a persevering faith. You say, I'm not sure about almost Christians. Well, Jesus was. In the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he talked about almost Christians in Matthew chapter 7. Christ, uh, professing Christians, professing believers in Jesus, uh, professing believers in the Messiah who said, Lord, Lord, we've done all these things. We've done all these things in your name. And Jesus said to him some of the most serious, solemn, fearful words in all of Scripture, depart from me, I never knew you. You see, when it comes to salvation, it's not so much how much we know and hold on to Jesus, it's whether Jesus knows and has held on to us. You see, many people are missing heaven by 18 inches. Did you realize that? Many people, there's a track even by that name. Many people are missing heaven by 18 inches. 18 inches is the distance between your head and your heart. And it's vitally important for you and I this morning to make sure that head knowledge is not all we know about Jesus, that we actually have been transformed in our heart. Those 18 inches can mean the difference between eternity with Christ and eternity without Christ. And so maybe you would ask me, how do I witness, Chris? How do I witness to an almost Christian? How do I know if someone is an almost Christian? Well, you do what Paul did here. You ask questions about their spiritual journey. For instance, you ask questions like, where are you on your spiritual journey? And then you listen. You ask questions like, at what point in your journey with God did he become personal? All of these questions will reveal 
where they are and what they're trusting in. I always like the diagnostic questions from Evangelism Explosion. If you were to die right now, do you know for sure, 100% certainty, if you died right now, that you would be in the presence of God? And then the follow-up question. If you did die and God said, why should I let you into my heaven? What would be your answer? Because your answer to that question reveals who and what you are trusting in for your salvation. How would you answer those questions this morning? Are you an almost Christian this morning? Have you received the Holy Spirit? Paul says in Romans 8, 9 through 11, you can turn there, Romans 8, 9. Paul says something very serious about our salvation and receiving the Spirit. In Romans 8, 9, he says this, However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Why is that important, Paul? But if anyone does not have the Spirit, Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. You must receive the Spirit to be saved. And you say, how do I know? How do, how do I know? Scripture tells us, trust in the promises of God. He is faithful. But also Philippians 2, 12 through 13 says this, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, obedience is the mark of a born-again, spirit-indwelt, Christ follower, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, that's true salvation when you obey God, not to please others, but to please Him. Not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because it's God who is inside you. It is God who is working out the salvation that He put in you. And not only is he working it out, but he's working in his will, his desire, and the doing of it for his good pleasure. You see, when you're truly born again and the Spirit is in there, your heart has been transformed so that you desire the things of God, you desire to do the things of God, and you are enabled to do them. We need the Spirit. To be saved. Now, why is receiving the Spirit essential to sowing? Well, because without Him, you're not saved, and if you're not saved, you're not going to desire to sow. Does that make sense? See, what I fear is many times we're trying to mobilize Christians to sow gospel seeds, and they need it themselves. I think sometimes we're trying to motivate almost Christians who are almost there, who have a head knowledge, but they're missing it by 18 inches. They haven't taken that step to actually trust in Christ. And therefore, we're asking them to be excited about sowing, and they need to be sown, the gospel themselves. So how do we receive the Spirit to be saved? Well, that's the second reason why receiving is necessary for sowing. Number two, we, re we receive the Spirit by believing the gospel of Jesus. You say, how can I get the Spirit? How can I get more of the Spirit? Now, 
be careful when you ask that question because our world is filled with people eager to answer that question. How can I get the Spirit? How can I get more of the Spirit? How can I feel the Spirit? How can I speak in tongues? How can I have more power? How can I have more influence? There's a lot of answers to that question. But please, beloved, look at the Scriptures. The Apostle Paul says, have you received the Holy Spirit? And they say, we don't even know about the Holy Spirit. And he doesn't immediately move in to nonsense and craziness and, and, and the spectacular. You know what he does? He preaches the gospel. And he points them not to the Spirit, but to the giver of the Spirit, Jesus, the risen Lord. So we receive the Spirit by believing the Spirit. Look at Acts uh, 19. Look at verses 4 through 6. Here is Paul's answer. So verse 4, Paul said, and from 4 through 6, Paul is telling us how to receive the Spirit by believing the gospel. And there's basically five essentials in this, in what he does. Let's take a look at it. Receiving the Spirit by believing. First of all, you need to hear the good news about the person and work of Jesus Christ. I love how this starts. He speaks, they listen, and then they respond. Listen, there's only one way anyone in this world is going to get saved, and that's through the preaching of the gospel from a messenger to those who need the message. That's why we have world outreach. That's why these families are raising their young families, their young kids, in a foreign, different culture, often dangerous settings. Because there's no other way. There's no other way. These people groups are going to be saved than hearing the gospel. Secondly, he says, here's what he says. Now that you're listening, he says, repent. He says, repent of your sin and quit trusting in false gods and false hopes and false expectations. Really what he's saying is quit trusting in yourself. Quit trusting in what you can do and instead turn to receive what God has already done in Jesus. Isn't that beautiful? That's the best news in the world. The best news, my guilt, my enslavement to sin, my bondage, I can turn from it and I receive all the righteousness, all the holiness that Terry sang about, all the goodness of this God who is holy and yet calls, can, invites us to call him Father. We can receive that, but we have to repent. John the Baptist preached this, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus, then when he began his ministry, he preached this. And the kingdom was at hand because the kingdom is near because the king is here. He wrapped that out a little bit, I think. Mark 1, 14 through 15. Now after John had taken into custody, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. It's near. Repent and believe in the gospel. You realize Peter preached repentance at, at, the, at the day of Pentecost. Here's what he said on the day of Pentecost. Repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive 
the gift of the Holy Spirit. Do you realize Paul preached repentance from Jerusalem to Samaria to the Gentiles in the uttermost parts of the world? He tells us that in Acts 26, 19. He says, I kept declaring both to those in Damascus first, also at Jerusalem, then throughout all the region of Judea, and even to the Gentiles. What did you preach, Paul? That they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. Well, we turn from our sins, but what do we turn to? Number three, we believe. We believe the good news about salvation by grace through faith in the risen Lord Jesus Christ, the sovereign reigning king who bestows the gift of the life-giving spirit. We turn from our own sins, our own reliance, and we trust in him. Paul says, believe in Jesus to these 12 men. He says, believe in Jesus. And yet, last week in Acts 18, that's not the message of Aquila and Priscilla. Why? Because Apollos already knew of Jesus. He already believed in Jesus. And so he says, believe in Jesus, forsaking him. Trust him. Trust him and forsake all others. And you will, number four, receive the indwelling spirit the moment you believe. You will receive the indwelling spirit the moment you believe. We see this in Acts 6. Now, I realize in Acts 6, they believed, and then Paul lays hands on them, and the Spirit comes upon them. But you need to understand that years later, in the letter to the Ephesians, when Paul writes back to the, this very city and the church that he planted in that city, years later, in Ephesians 1, 13 through 14, he says these words. In him also... After listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, because you can't just listen, you have to respond with faith and trust, having believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of of his glory. Did you hear the did you hear the, the the sequence in that? Hearing the gospel, believing the gospel from your heart, receiving the Holy Spirit into your heart. That's the process. And then he even writes to the Corinthians, the Corinthians that he had just left. Later he writes to them and he says these words in 1 Corinthians 12:13. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jew or Greek, whether slaves or free. doesn't matter who you are. As long as you trust Jesus, you're baptized into one body, and we were all made to drink of the Spirit. What's the implication there? Not only do you, must you have the Spirit to be saved, but you must have the Spirit to be in Christ. You must have the Spirit to be placed into the body of Christ. You see, it's the Spirit. Christ saves us by giving His Spirit, who then places us in Him and makes us a part of God's new covenant people. Number five, identify publicly. Fifth, 
identify publicly with Jesus and his church by water baptism. That's found in verse 5. Those who hear the gospel, repent of their sin and believe in Jesus, receive the Spirit, and then they're baptized with this external picture of what has already taken place internally. All water baptism is telling the world, I'm saved, I'm a new creature, I went down, I died, and I'm risen to walk in newness of life. Why? Because I died with Him, I was buried with Him, and I raised with Him. But it's also a picture of being immersed in that water of how the Spirit immerses us into Jesus Christ. And so your water baptism doesn't save you. It's a picture of how you should have already been saved. Now, if you are paying attention, and I hope you are, and if you're looking at your Bible while I'm preaching, which I hope you do, you will notice that things are going a little different in this passage than what I'm teaching you. Teaching you from the Apostle Paul, but what is described. And so what you need to understand is, why is that? Why is that, kind of, why is that sequence different? What's going on here with the laying of hands and the, the prophesying and the speaking in known languages? Because please understand in the book of Acts, Tongues are not gobbledygook. They are known languages that you are supernaturally speaking, even though no one ever taught you them. Real languages that you had never known before. Here's what you've got to understand about Acts. This is a transitional time in the book of Acts. And you're like, I don't know if it's transitional. Well, then you didn't read Acts 18, and you're not reading Acts 19, because there are weird stuff going on we got weird things going on. Why? Because it's a transition time. Do you realize that the old covenant ended when Christ was crucified, but the new covenant blessing didn't come until 50 days later? There was a transition time. And during this generation, this first generation of believers, there's this weird time warp transition time from when Christ, the Spirit has come and, and things are as Paul teaches them in his epistles, and yet it's being played out in people's lives in a transitional manner. And here's the point. Here the gospel, repent of sins, believe in Jesus, receive the Spirit, and be water baptized is the sequence of the church age now. But in the book of Acts, there's four different times when the Spirit comes and tongues are spoken or languages are spoken, apostles lay hands. It's four different times and it happens to four different people groups and it happens in four different ways. And so if you turn over your chart and your bullets, and if you turn that chart over, you got this wild and crazy chart of the transitional nature of spirit baptism. And I can't take you through all that, but here's my point. What is happening is, as the gospel moves from Jerusalem and Judaism, moves to Gentiles and the uttermost parts of the world, God is authenticating that the spirit has come. Now, there's people that say, well, you know what? I want to do it like they did in Acts. I would ask you, well, which, which way? Which time? You want to do it like in Jerusalem and 
have flaming tongues of fire on your head? Do you want to do it like in Samaria and you want Jewish apostles who no longer exist to lay hands on you? Do you want to do it like in Caesarea where another Jewish apostle is there and, and God just directly does it the moment they believe? Because if you look at these four times, the time that gets the greatest attention is the time that is most like what God is doing throughout the church age. The gospel is peach preach, people believe, and the Spirit comes down. And because it came down directly, the, the speaking in languages and prophesizing was affirming to the Jewish believers, I am saving the, the people groups of the world in the same way that I'm saving you. Well, that's all I can do. All I want you to understand is the prophetical predictions of spirit baptism are in the Gospels. The transitional progression is in the book of Acts. The historical progression is in the book of Acts. And the doctrinal explanations are in the epistles of Paul. And that's where we find our sequence. But let me stop and say this. It's so easy it's so easy to let the questions about spectacular signs, about speaking in known languages, about whether spiritual gifts ceased or continue, that we miss the main reason for the giving of the Spirit. And that's the third reason why the Spirit is necessary, and it's this. We receive the Spirit to rely on the Spirit to sow with gospel power. You know, we can get in our little huddles, our holy huddles, and we can debate whether gifts cease or continue. We can debate about tongues and private prayer languages, and all the while, the world, over two billion, have never heard the name of Jesus. And Christ didn't give us the spirit to be focused on self and puffed up in pride about our spiritual abilities. He gave it so that we would sow with abandon, sow with accuracy, and sow with gospel power. What does that look like in the book of Acts? By the way, Acts 1.8 said this, You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Why? To be witnesses to the uttermost parts of the world. What does relying on the Spirit look like? In the book of Acts, there's three basic ways. You can look through the book of Acts, and you can, you, can, you can plant yourself on spectacular miracles and gifts and prophesying, but that's not where Luke is focusing on. Number one, power to bridge the gap to all peoples. The reason you have this transition in these four areas is because the gospel is always supposed to be advancing to bridge the gap between God and people who do not know him. Secondly, power to sow with boldness in spite of opposition. Come back next week. We'll see more about this next week. But please understand, Apollos was bold and powerful in communicating the gospel. Paul was bold and powerful. And you know why? Not because they were any different from us. It's because they had the indwelling spirit. And they relied on it. They relied on him to empower them. And thirdly, 
Power to see lives radically changed by gospel transformation. That's what it's all about. Pushing into unknown people groups to speak with boldness the gospel so that they believe and their lives are transformed by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And so here's the deal. We rely on the Spirit because He is present in our lives the moment we believe to empower us to be witnesses that bridge the gap to all peoples. So here's what I want to say to you this morning. If you know Jesus this morning, if you have turned from your sins to trust Him, then the moment you did that, whether you understood it, whether you needed more discipleship about it, like Apollos, the Spirit indwelt you, and you became a witness. So we don't decide as believers this morning, am I going to be a witness or not? We decided that when we accepted Jesus and He made us witnesses. Are you with me? So the only question this morning for us as Christ followers is am I a good witness or am I a bad one? Now, the, the Lord gave you the Holy Spirit to be a good one. And if you're being a bad witness for Jesus then in love, he encourages you to repent and rely on the Holy Spirit to be a good one. And if you're here this morning and you're a good witness for Jesus, then we are to be humbled, thankful, and continue to rely because he makes us that good witness, not us. We should remain humble. So here's the two crucial questions this morning. Have you received the Spirit, or are you an almost Christian this morning? Have you received the Spirit? And number two, if you are born again this morning, are you relying on the Spirit to sow with gospel power? Now, here's what I want to do in closing. I want to share with you one of my, my all-time favorite stories from church history. It's the story of the conversion of John Wesley. John Wesley lived in England in the 1700s, and he was a part of the Church of England. He became, you may have heard of Wesley, because he became the founder of Methodism, Methodist, even though he never intended to start a denomination, he always wanted to reform the Church of England from the inside. Wesley's story is this. He grew up in the privilege of having a Christian home with Christian parents. His Father was a pastor. His mom, Susanna Wesley, was this unbelievably godly woman with, a, with a, a, a horde of kids. And she would sit in her kitchen and take her apron and put it over her head and have her devotions with these minions running around. And they would know when mom's doing that, she's getting alone with God. He had the privilege of attending Oxford in England, and he became a, no, a, a double professor of Greek and logic. In other words, he was very much at home in the scriptures all of his life. He served with his father and eventually even became a pastor. And while at Oxford, Wesley and his friends became a member of what was called the Holy Club because the church was so diminished the, the, the level of Christian witness in the church was so immoral that they 
got together not to be just a holy huddle, but to be a holy club and to give themselves diligently and devoted themselves and disciplined themselves to live holy lives, and they were mocked for it at a school of divinity, and they were called, oh, you're a part of that holy club. You're a part of that holy club. In other words, he had a passion to be godly. Then he did the ultimate you could ever do, or so we think. He became a missionary to those Indians in America. And so he boards a ship, and he sails from England to America to be a missionary to the American Indians in Georgia. But guess what? He went there to sow gospel seeds with abandon, and he failed. He failed miserably. He failed in his work, and he was forced to return to England. And here's what he wrote in his journal. I went to America to convert the Indians, but oh, who shall convert me? You see, in the process, by God's grace, Wesley began to figure out, I'm almost a Christian. And on that boat ride over, which we can't even begin to imagine what that's like, transatlantic boat travel, he met a group of Moravians who were a missionary, born-again group of believers who is probably the biggest mobilization force for missions in the history of the church. They were going to America as well. And as he interacted with these Moravians, he saw in their lives, he heard in their talk, he saw in their worship something different. And that difference, he realized, was missing in his own life. You see, there were terrible storms. And when those storms came, these Moravians, because they had a, a faith in a sovereign God who had saved them, and, and Jesus and the Holy Spirit within them, they would sing hymns and had that peace of God because they had the God of peace in their hearts through the Holy Spirit. And he returned and realized... I am an almost Christian. He returned to England, becoming convinced of his own unbelief. He sought out one of the Moravian leaders, and he went to one of their churches in England. And here is what Wesley writes in his journal on May 24, 1738. In the evening, I went very unwillingly to a Moravian meeting in Aldersgate Street, where one of the Moravians was reading Luther's preface to the Epistle of the Romans. Okay, this isn't even a sermon. This is reading the great reformer Martin Luther's introduction to Romans. And a quarter before nine, while he's describing, while Luther is describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ Christ alone for salvation. An assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and had saved me from the law of sin and death. Prior to that, almost Christian. After that, truly born again. And three years later, after that experience, he would write one of his most popular and famous sermons, which was this, the almost Christian. Could I read to you the last paragraph of that sermon? May we all thus experience what it is to be 
not almost only, but altogether Christians, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Jesus, knowing we have peace with God through Jesus Christ, rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God and having the love of God shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit given to us. Now, it's a sad side note. He spread revival over England and even into the Americas. But it was with Wesley that the modern Pentecostal, charismatic, two-stage understanding of salvation, it all started with him. So we need to sow with gospel accuracy as well as abandon. So let me say this to you. Don't leave here this morning an almost Christian. Don't leave here. Let, repent of your sins. Place your trust in Jesus. Let the Spirit come into your heart to change your desires, to want to love God, love others, and sow the gospel with gospel power. But for those of us that have done that, what now? What now? Say it with me. Go sow with gospel power. Let's say that. Go sow with gospel power. And here's what I would encourage you to do. Rely on the Spirit to look for evidence of God at work in people's lives. And then ask questions like Paul did to discover their spiritual journey. And then rely on the Spirit to share the gospel the best you know how. And then rely on the Spirit to not just abandon the baby, but to disciple that new creation in word and spirit. Amen? With your heads bowed and as the musicians come, and this is a message we need to respond to. And it's a message that there's really two responses. Either we need to step from unbelief to belief and say, Lord, I want to believe in Jesus to save me from my sins. I want to receive the Holy Spirit. I want to be born anew. I want to become a new creation. My guilt is killing me. My sin is tearing apart my life, my family. My life is in shambles, or maybe my life is so perfect, I'm living as though I don't need God, and I need to repent of that. I don't know where you're at, but receive him this morning. And then if you have, would you make a commitment fresh and anew to rely on him, to, to be like the Moravians and live different, talk different, and be bold about your witness? Because there's a whole lot of people who are missing heaven by 18 inches. Father, we come before you and we acknowledge that the work that needs to be done is the work that only you can do. As we respond, may your spirit take your word and transform hearts for your glory. Amen. Respond as they play.